We'll go ahead and get started. I want to welcome back TC Ham this morning. Those of you who have been here know we're into an exciting study. I've heard comments to that effect. And again, we welcome you and lift you up uh, with this prayer. Father, we enter again another exciting week of study of your word. We're blessed to have a faithful and rich teacher to bring it to us. The book tells us of your sovereignness, and it reminds us that you love those who are obedient to you. And, and Father, we understand this in our mind, and so often we ask you to do the work, and we ask you to give us more faith and help us in our unbelief. And you tell us that it takes, it takes such little faith, even a mustard seed would move the mountain. Help us understand that our part in this is obedience to you. We live double-minded and we want from you and yet we want it for us. And we think that we can do and just add you to our lives. So our prayer this morning as we study is that you reveal to us, you bring us to the point that we can live away from double-mindedness, but focus on you. That we can find sincerely and completely the way to offer our hearts to you through our obedience, which is a sign of our love. And these things we pray in your name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm excited to be back. Um, last time, I was just working through the text, and um, when, when I do that, it, it's good in one sense because it, it's, it's fresh, it's, uh, um, I'm in the text with you, but then I didn't have any notes with me, and I, and I just skipped things that I wanted to mention, so this time, I've got a little posted. <laughs> <coughs> I got a little posted in my Hebrew Bible so that I don't forget to cover some things that are, so I, I read through the text yesterday and the day before uh, just to see, okay, what do I want to not miss this time? But one thing I missed last time I wanted to cover just really quickly was this. The, the words that Ruth says to Naomi uh, when she says, don't urge me to leave you, don't force me to leave you, abandon you, because if I abandon you, you would essentially die, uh, most likely, or at the mercy of of, of charity of others. Um, that, that speech that Ruth gives, it's in poetry. Did I mention that? I forgot, didn't I? It's in beautiful Hebrew poetry. It's got a three, two meter rhyme. Uh, not, I'm sorry, not rhyme, meter. It's got a dot, 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 kind of a, um, a three accents and two accents. And uh, it's in poetry. Now, so what I wanted to cover about that was this. We do know that this is a historically based story. So because Ruth is uh, David's, okay, this I almost messed up, okay? So David's father was Jesse, Jesse's father is Obed, and Obed's father was Boaz. Did I get that right? Okay, so <clears throat> this is a historically rooted story, but we, but we do know that the storyteller is taking some license, like good storytellers usually do, some poetic license. And so who was there when Naomi and Ruth were talking to each other? Well, just the two women. So did, was there a scribe writing down what Ruth said to Naomi? No, of course not. So this was a story told and passed down, and whoever recorded it, by the way, a beautiful author, uh, just powerful storyteller, uh, captures the story in ways that are somewhat imaginative, because I doubt, I really do doubt, uh, that Ruth somehow broke into this beautiful poetic line to her mother-in-law. People just don't burst into song in regular uh, life, right? When people burst into song, we know we're watching something that's kind of made up. Uh, so this portion, I, I, I'm sure, is by the hand of the author and includes this beautiful poetic line 
um, where you lie, I will lie. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be, there I will be. Your people, my people, and, and your God, my God. That, that beautiful poetic lines um, was inserted to show the determination of Ruth. She was absolutely determined not to abandon her mother-in-law in this point of need for her. Uh, in chapter two, what we're, we're gonna start today, we see why Ruth needed to stay. Uh, and we'll talk about that. But I wanted to inject that little, uh, cover that part of it. Say, I'm comfortable having somewhat imaginative uh, inserts into a historically rooted story. Uh, as, as a conservative, I'm, I'm somewhat biblically conservative, socially, politically, that's a whole nother means uh, discussion. But biblically, I'm on the kind of the fuddy-duddy side. Um, kind of conservative when it comes to taking numbers literally. So when it says there were 430 years, I take those numbers literally. Uh, when Saul reigns for 40 years and David reigns for 40 years and Solomon reigns for 40 years, I take those numbers uh, as literally as I can. So as someone who takes the text quite seriously and literally, uh, I, I struggled with that at first. Like, well, it says in the text, and then Nao and Ruth said to Naomi. Ooh. It says she said this, but then it's poetry. What do we do with that? So I struggled with this for a long time, and I came to terms, hey, it's the text that's inspired. It's the text that's God's word, and the God's word has this imaginative poetic element in it. Uh, also, I wanted to say something that I didn't say last time. You can inject, uh, and, and I didn't leave a lot of time last time because we kind of rushed through the end uh, for questions. So if you have questions throughout any time, like, hey, can you explain that again? Or what do you think about this? Uh, please don't hesitate to interrupt me anytime. Uh, and I'll try to leave some room at the end of the class today to have some Q&A if, if you like. Uh, so we're in chapter two. So if you weren't here last time, chapter one, uh, Ruth's introduction happens with Orpah. And I mentioned how important names are in the book of Ruth. So Elimelech, the father of this, the patriarch of the family dies immediately. The name Elimelech or Elimelech means my God is king. A very good, strong Jewish name. My God is king. So we're to assume something like, oh, he was a good, faithful Jewish person. Naomi means pleasant, lovely one. Uh, and of course she has two kids. The two sons were Machlon and Kilion. Do you remember those names? Do you know what those names uh, meant? Sickly and, sickly and frail, or sickly and weakly, I say, uh, because they're uh, diminutive names. So little sickly, little weakly were their names, and they die. Uh, Orpah, back of the net, right here. So she leaves. Ruth, companion, friendship, uh, and she stays. So names, I said last time, again, I don't think these were their real names, uh, just like Solomon wasn't his real name, or Israel wasn't the real name of Jacob. Avraham, Avraham, Abraham was not his real name. His given name was Avram. So we know that in the Bible, the names can often change. Peter, that's not his na real name. He was, his name was Shimon, right, Simon. So uh, names get changed all the time. Saul to Paul. Uh, Barnabas, I'm not even sure if that's his name, son of encouragement, or uh, could, could have been. Uh, and then we, we saw how determined Ruth was to stay uh, with her mother-in-law. And then and we're getting into, uh, we got to Bethlehem, they're back in Bethlehem, and they enter just as the beginning of the barley harvest started. And, and chapter two takes off from that, from that point on. So we'll, we'll, we'll go back and, uh, and, and read through the text Chapter two is a little longer than chapter one. So some parts, again, we'll have to mach um, and schnell uh, just move through. Uh, chapter, one, uh, chapter two, verse one. Now, do most of your transla translation have something like now? Or some sort of disjunctive? So Hebrew says, okay, new scene. Or uh, pause for a second. Let me explain something before we get to the story. So this is a kind of a parenthetical statement that the author is giving us. It's not part of the narrative sequence. So the, the storyteller stepping back, let me give you some information that the story, uh, the characters don't have yet. So there are two kinds of uh, that parenthetical information that sometimes we get. Oh, by the way, a good storyteller will do two things. You know how when you're watching a movie or reading a book, you know sometimes more than the characters do? And you see it coming? 
this is that part. Sometimes the characters, because they're in the story, know more than the readers do. And then the readers discover from what the characters do, oh, okay, that's what's going on. So there, there are two kinds of knowledge that, we can, uh, that, that the storyteller can manipulate. And this one, the storyteller is giving us information that Ruth won't have until later. So now, to Naomi was a, a kinsman, a close uh, relative, on her husband's side. And his, he was, and here's a translation that I love. Uh, what kind of a man was he? Give me your translation. What, do, what does your text say about what kind of man this was? Standing. Standing. Men of wealth. Men of wealth. Mighty. Mighty man. Prominent. Prominent. Sorry? Worthy. Worthy. Any others? That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> what? How is a prominent, worthy, what does that mean? The translation is doing some strange things here because literally it says, man of great might of valor. Uh, it says the word gibor typically refers to a warrior. Like, whoa, that's weird. Uh, this is, we, we'll know from the story that, that Boaz is an older gentleman. So to describe him as a gibor chayel, chayel, uh, means a mighty warrior. That doesn't really fit the story. So the translators are giving us a, an interpreted translation, a worthy, standing, wealthy, influential, something like that. But literally it says, uh, gibor chayel. The word looks like this in, in Hebrew, but uh, it's, it's, you might pronounce it something like that with a, a chayel. And it means something like valor or might. And it doesn't fit. And even in Hebrew, it's a strange word. It doesn't occur very often. So whenever a, a storyteller uses a strange word that doesn't really fit the story, the, the narrator is giving us attention. Hey, 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 listen to this. I'm doing something weird. You ready for this? So you got to keep this in mind so that I don't keep you in suspense because <laughs> uh, we don't know yet. Okay, the storyteller is using a strange phrase and we go, what? That's weird. Boaz, Gibor uh, Chayel, that doesn't fit. I'll, I'll tell you what's going on. Uh, and this is a note that I jotted down so I don't forget it. Somebody read uh, chapter 3, and we're skipping ahead, and we're going to talk about it next time too, but chapter 3, verse 11. Would someone read that out loud for us? And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of worth. You are a woman of worth. So this is a story at the threshing floor we'll talk about next time. Boaz is talking to Ruth, and he's promising something. I'm going to do everything I can because I know something. What I know is you're, you're a woman of worth. That word, chayel, mighty valor. A woman of might and valor. So that's weird too. Again, this word is often used to describe a warrior, not a woman, and not an old man either. So the author is using this word to say, I'm going to make you notice this word and connect two characters using this strange word. Uh, it occurs one more time. Again, this is a very strange word. So that it occurs three times in the book is, again, uh, 411. Would someone read 411 for us? Thank you. May you prosper. Hmm. See, translations, they have to come up with something. May you be this together. May you together now be this. So, Boaz is chayel, Ruth is chayel, and at the end of the story, the people bless them and say, may you both be chayel. Might, valor, strong. So, uh, the, the author introduces Boaz this way, 
and you're supposed to not know what's going on yet. So I didn't want to, I, I thought about this. I thought, okay, hold that thought in your head until we get to chapter three. But then I thought, no, we're going to forget. <laughs> I'm going to forget to talk about Chayel again. So I jotted that down in my little sticky note. All right, let's keep, keep reading this text. <laughs> this guy, we're not going to make it to chapter two, are we? <laughs> All right. He was a, a, a man of something, this chayel, worthy, standing man. The reason the author doesn't use words like necessary, like rich, is because then you can't use that word to describe Ruth. Uh, by the way, oh, oh, one more thing. Woman of chayel occurs one other time in the Bible, besides Ruth. You know, you know where that is? Sorry? Yes, who said that? Yes, at the end of the, uh, of the book of Proverbs, this woman, this great of woman of nobility uh, that stands really as, as, as uh, a personification of wisdom, she is described as woman of chayel as well. Could be a reference to Ruth. The, pro- the proverb author is describing Ruth in a sense, metaphorically. <laughs> We're really not gonna get very far today, are we? Okay, so he was from the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Boaz. Remember, I said names are important. And this name, uh, my students looked it up one time, and then they said, what's fleet-footed? And I had to explain what fleet-footed was. They didn't know the English phrase, fleet-footed. Uh, it means fast-moving. So he's a fast mover. So what is, why is this person named fast mover? We'll see in just a minute. And then Ruth said to her mother-in-law, uh, I'm sorry, Ruth the Moabitess. We already know she's a Moabitess, don't we? And yet the author intends, intentionally tells, reminds us, hey, don't forget, she's a foreigner. Ruth the Moabite said, to, her, said um, to, her, to Naomi, let me go among the fields, in the field, and let me glean uh, among the, the, the grain, the sheaves, and after whom I might find favor. Or literally, in his eyes, I might find chain. And there's another word that is very powerful in Hebrew. Chain uh, means grace. Sometimes mean mercy. Chain, favor. Uh, in whose eyes I might find chain, mercy, grace, favor. And she said, "Go, my daughter." So she went and uh, she entered. Uh, the word then, th- right there, she came. Now the the story is in the perspective from the field. So she came into. To, to glean uh, in the field after the gatherers, the, the harvesters. And then there's an interesting phrase there. Last week I mentioned that my experience of God is like this. God, I don't see the Red Sea splitting, but looking backwards you see the happenstances and coincidences that, that the hand of God, the sovereignty of God is ex- expressed through. The phrase there literally says, her happenstance happened upon. Uh, I think King James something renders something kind of similar to that. Uh, so the same word, Nahar, is used. Uh, it, it, uh, it says, she happened upon by happenstance. So the author is telling us, hey, don't forget, I'm emphasizing the coincidence of this thing because I'm really talking about the providence of God. So she happened upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who is from the family of Elimelech. Now, we were told this already. Ruth doesn't know this yet. And look, Hine. Uh, last, last week, I talked about Hine being a perspectival, emphatic statement when, when uh, Naomi tells Ruth, look, listen, your sister-in-law has gone back. Why don't you go back too? And she says, no, no way. So Hine is perspectival, and this is the author almost inviting the reader to look with, with the author. Now look, Boaz, at that moment, Boaz enters from Bethlehem, from Bethlehem. So he's coming back from the city into the fields. And he says to the gatherers, Yahweh imachem, or Adonai imachem, great greeting, Adonai imachem. Uh, the Lord be with you. And they said to him, the Lord bless you. Uh, the greetings of that time reflect even greetings today. Uh, we, we should, you know how when, when we gather sometimes, the Lord bless you, Lord be with you. Uh, those, so those greetings happen. Uh, in verse, uh, well, I, I'm not, I don't want to read too much into it, but they could have said simply, 
Shalom Aleichem, which is peace be with you, peace be upon you. But the fact that both the, uh, the gatherers and Boaz invoke the name of Yahweh, the Lord in all caps in most translations, that's the name, the tetragrammaton, four letters, Yahweh. And, and so I don't want to read too much into it, but perhaps these are religious Jewish people greeting each other with the name of the Lord. Make sure I didn't skip anything. <laughs> Looking at my little post-it. Okay. Uh, let's get to, where were we? Verse five? Verse five. Then Boaz said to the young man in charge over the, the gatherers, there's an interesting phrase there, to whom the young woman this? To whom young woman this? Uh, you might have it translated something like, whose woman is this? Whose young person is, to whom does this woman belong? So he's not asking, by the way, who is this woman? Uh, the, the narrator doesn't say, who is this person? He's interested to know if she's married. Fast mover. <laughs> who is this woman? Is she married? <laughs> it's a different translation, isn't it? It makes a difference. Does this woman belong to anyone? Because uh, I'm interested already. He's a fast mover. And uh, so the, the, the young man answers. Uh, the young man who's in charge over, there's an idiom there, uh, charge over the, the gatherers. And, and he said, uh, this young woman is the Moabitess who returned with Naomi from the fields of Moab. Now, it seems from that, that construction that sh that's enough information for Boaz, uh, apparently people have been talking about this. this uh, and we'll find out that Boaz has heard all about uh, Ruth in just, a, in just a moment. So he knows who Ruth is. He just didn't know what she looked like or who she was. Now he gets to meet her. Remember I said this is kind of a romance novel almost? Uh, there's a romantic element here already. So he was already looking forward to meeting this woman. But now he gets to meet her. Uh, continuing on to the, in the, in the nest, now we have a nested quotation. So we have a quotation from this young man, and he, he is going to speak in the person, in the first person feminine form, um, and he, so repeating what Ruth had told him. And, he's, and she, she said to me, she said, uh, let me glean, please, and gather among the sheaves after uh, the, the harvesters. And she came, uh, and she's been persisting. She's been hard at work from then, the morning, until now. And then here, another translational choice here. Uh, what do you have? Does it say that she hasn't rested at all ex except just now, or she's now resting a little in the house? Short rest in the shelter. Short rest in the shelter. Does someone have, she hasn't re even rested in the shelter? She hasn't rested at all. So there's a translational choice there. Um, th in Hebrew, it, it could go either way. It really just, just does say a short stoppage in the little house. Uh, but the LXX, the ancient translation of the Old Testament in Greek says she hasn't even rested a little bit in the, in the house. So there's some, some textual issues there. But either way, the, 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 the young man, the servant of Boaz is reporting how hard she's been working all day. So he must have come midday to see how the work was going. Because they're about to have a meal. So <laughs> midday, sometime in the <coughs> middle of the day. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now so, he, so he goes to her, obviously, and Boaz says to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter, is, is a good translation, but literally sa it says, uh, have you not heard? I know that's not an idiom that English has, but it's an emphatic. Have, I, have you not heard means I'm about to tell you something that you really need to hear this. So listen carefully, my daughter. That's a strange word to say to a woman. Um, my daughter, BT. It, it does characterize Boaz. <coughs> he recognizes he's an older person and she's a younger woman, not Ara. She, he, he's, she's constantly referred to as a young woman. Um, and he says, my daughter. 
what would you say? <laughs> Some of my younger students says, that's creepy. Uh, but I don't think so. Uh, how does this characterize Boaz as a person, as a character? Yes, <laughs> old, older, yes. More caring. Caring. It's, a f- it's kind of a filial word, right? It's like my daughter. There's a, almost a compassionate, protective sense to that word. My daughter, listen. Do not go uh, to glean in, in another field. In fact, don't go anywhere, <laughs> he says. Don't cross from here. Don't go anywhere uh, from here. Stay here and with my young women. So he's got young workers there. Um, Some translations will say my servant girls or maidservants, but it just says my young women. So there are women working in the field. uh, uh, Oh, uh, let me me explain something really quickly. Uh, Gleaning. So what's happening in in this area was this. So there are men who do the sickling. So they've got a sickle and they cut the, the stalks of grain and the women gather them after the men have sickled. And then, if you're a faithful Jewish person, a person of faith, Moses' uh, law says you can't pick up the stuff that falls behind them. So the men sickle. When you're sickling, the ripened, the older grain fall to the ground, right? And uh, they gather, and of course, you you wanna move as quickly as possible. So when they're gathering, they might leave things behind. And that left behind stuff is for the poor. So in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's clear that Moses demands, leave that. Let the poor work and gather that for themselves. And this was already happening. So Boaz must have instructed his people, hey, yeah, follow the Mosaic law. Again, uh, Boaz is a person of faith. The way he greets his workers and that practice of gleaning is already happening. By the way, in, in this time, not everyone was following the Mosaic law. They hired gleaners they don't lose money. So uh, they would gather every little bit of the grain. In an agrarian culture, obviously, grain is wealth. And, and to leave all that behind would have been something of a, a, a challenge for a person who owned that land. But Boaz is clearly having that happen. All right, verse 9. Uh, Let your eyes be on the field, and, and after the, uh, where, where the, the, uh, the harvesters have have, have gone, follow, walk after them. And then another emphatic statement happens in the form of a rhetorical question. Um, have I not, but she's, he, he hasn't yet, he will, or he has recently or is about to, uh, commanded the young men not to touch you. Now, that could be understood in two different ways, because it is not to approach you or touch you or strike you in any way. Um, remember the context of Judges, a period of, of Israelite dark history that women were quite vulnerable at this time. Uh, the period of Judges, remember the end of Judges where women were treated quite poorly. So even among these righteous people, he had to warn at least the young people he, he, whom he hired, don't touch her. It could also mean she's mine. Don't go near her, young men. Uh, If you're thirsty, when you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from that which the young men have drawn. So don't, you don't have to do, so she would have to go to the well herself normally, draw water, drink, and come back. Again, that means she has to leave the field. And in a dangerous time for young women, he wants to say, stay right here, they'll bring the water to you, don't go anywhere. BT, my daughter, was that how he started this conversation? He's protective of her. So you can see how fast he's moving already. It's like, she's mine, I'm protecting her. You stay right here, don't go anywhere. Um, Then she does something quite amazing. She falls uh, to her face, literally it says in Hebrew, to her face, and she prostrated to the ground, and she said to him, why? There are two words in Hebrew for why. One is kind of a, a common lama, what for? Lama, why? Madua is a kind of an ancient wherefore. Uh, it's an ancient term, uh, but it, it gives emphasis. Why? 
have I found favor, grace, mercy, chen, in your eyes. Remember, she was looking for someone in whose eyes she might find chen, grace, favor, mercy. Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you have noticed me because I'm a foreigner. Uh, she recognizes her place in an Israelite law, legal system. She has no rights. Uh, immigrants at this time had no legal rights to be there. They were there, and they were allowed to be there, but that means they were at the mercies of others around them. Boaz answered and said to her, and he here uh, again is an emphatic statement. Uh, Hebrew has way many ways of doing emphatic statements, and the strongest emphasis is take the same word and repeat it twice back to back. One in what's called the infinitive absolute, one the finite form. So it repeats the same word twice in two different forms. Okay, keep that in mind because it's going to come back later. So this one says, "Hugaid, um, hugad." You can hear, the, even if you don't know Hebrew, you can hear the same reference. Hugaid, hugad. So it's been told to me. Yeah, emphatically. So some translations will say, it's been told, it, I've been really well informed about this, or it's been really, uh, how does your version render that kind of em emphasis? Fully? Yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been given a full report. Uh, so I've been really told. <laughs> I don't know how to emphasize this word. Uh, I've been really told everything. Again, that's uh, again emphasis there. Everything that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband. And then now we get to see that this this character knows more about stuff than we do. Remember, it was the other way around for a while. And so Boaz reveals things to the reader that we hadn't had uh, privilege to up until this point. That you have left your father, your mother, and the land of your birth. So the, the, um, the idea is she could have gone back. She had a father and a mother. The three parts, your father, your mother, the land of your birth, uh, really emphasizes how hard this must have been for Ruth to leave everything behind. And you came and you went to a people that you did not know until three days ago, <laughs> literally. Uh, it's an idiom, but meaning recently. Until you haven't known us very long, so you don't know about us, our pe the people. Uh, I mentioned last time the importance of the word people and God. Your God, my God, your people, my people. Uh, the the um, Mosaic Covenant, all covenants have that language. I will be their God and they will be my people. The New Covenant uses that language as well. David gets that language. All covenantal language has people and God in it. So Boaz repeats that word, people that you didn't know. May the Lord make blank your work. Okay, I'm doing blank there. There's a verb there. May the Lord, may Yahweh, may Yahweh make your work shalom. Do you know that word, shalom? Peace. The word shalom is a powerful word in Hebrew. It doesn't mean the absence of war or conflict. Peace is bigger than just the absence of conflict. Peace is unbroken, whole, complete. So sometimes it can be used to heal someone. So if your body's broken, let's say you get a broken limb and you need to get you know, a, a cast and then that heals, it becomes unbroken again or whole again. And that's this word, shalom. May the Lord shalom your work and may your wage or your wages be shalom again by the Lord or from the Lord or Yahweh God of Israel remember people God people God that is a covenantal uh, uh, 
key phrase. God of Israel, under uh, whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Very, uh, uh, almost pious sounding, so religiously pious sounding that uh, the author clearly wants us to know that Boaz is a person of great faith. No, I'm moving fast. Let me see if I've skipped anything. Uh, Shalom, yes, people, God, Yahweh. Yeah, people, God, Yahweh. People, God, Adonai. Uh, That was a note that I had. All right, uh, 13. Are we at 13? Yes, 13. Uh, And she said, may I continue to find chen, grace, favor, mercy in your eyes, Lord, for you have comforted me. And indeed, you have spoken tenderly to my heart. Uh, literally, over my heart. All lave. You've spoken over my heart. The language there is quite tender. Um, she's acknowledging the fact that Boaz has spoken in ways that she did not expect. BT, my daughter, all the protective language that that he's used. She's saying, oh, I think I understand. May I continue to find grace in your eyes because you've comforted me and you've spoken over my heart. You've spoken clearly, tenderly to me. Your maidservant, even though I am not one of your maidservants. And he said to her, Boaz said to her, uh, at the late, this is a kind of a later scene during the time of the meal. Uh, this is the meal time a little later. Come, draw near. And eat from the bread, the food. And uh, dip your, this is a strange word, dip your morsel, piece of bread, something like that, uh, in the wine vinegar that I have. Uh, I guess bread back then was kind of dry, so you dip it in some sort of wine vinegar. Uh, and so she sat very close to the other gatherers where she shouldn't be. The, the kotsurim were hired workers, the people gatherers, and, and the gleaners uh, would not be eating at the same table. They were the poor people who were typically left out of this kind of feast almost. Yes? Uh, not yet. No, the question is, is she offering herself uh, as a maid or to the betrothed? Neither, really. What she's recognizing is two things. She's saying, okay, I don't have a right to be here, but you're really giving me lots of rights that I don't have as a foreigner. like to glean. She's just acknowledging this to him. Yes. Okay. And then he is work- he's working it. <laughs> Remember, he's fast moving. He's fleet. He's boss. He's got to move fast. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think she's realizing, oh, something's going on. That's why she says, you've comforted me, and you've spoken over my heart. Hey, you're sweet-talking me. I get it. May I continue to find grace, favor in your eyes. And then he says, come, draw near. Sit next to me and dip your morsel here. Uh, in my vinegar, basically, my wine, so that you can enjoy your food. And then there's a strange phrase, that this is a, a hapoxlogomenon, a word that only occurs once, uh, and, and, and this is a strange word. It means like to extend or reach out. So he reaches out to her with this kali, uh, roasted or parched grain. Some translations will say parched grain. And she eats, and she's full, and there's leftover. Um, so the, even that word, reach out, or s- how does your version render that part? He does something, serves her, offered, offered her, passed to her. Passed to her. Uh, it, but it has kind of almost a, phys- there's a physicality to this word, like reaching over, making sure that he's close and she's there. So she ate plenty, and she was full, she was satisfied, and there were leftovers. Then as she got up uh, to glean again, Boaz commanded the, the, the young men, saying this. All right, listen. Even among the sheaves, let her glean, and do not embarrass her. 
In other words, don't let her glean just behind the coterie. Let her join the coterie. The, I'm sorry, I'm using Hebrew. Uh, the gatherers. So don't let her be behind the gatherers. Just be, let her glean everywhere. And then, even among... Uh, do you remember I said, I, I said to remember the strongest emphatic phrase or construction in Hebrew is the same word repeated twice in two different ways. And this is the one, a shoal here. Shoal means to pull. And it says, pull and then pull some more. Oh, by the way, that construction first occurs in Genesis. You may freely eat of anything in this garden. You may eat and eat some more. Achal tochel is it's the same word repeated twice. So eat and then eat some more. Go nuts. <laughs> right? You may freely eat. It's a strong emphasis. English has no way of rendering. Just go nuts, crazy, eat everything. But the moment you eat of that one, you will dyingly die. You will surely die. You will really die. That was the construction in Genesis. The same repeating the, em the emphatic construction. And here he says, Go nuts and pull some stuff out. <laughs> so he's telling the young men, okay, not only let her glean among the sheaves, just pull things out and leave it behind. <laughs> uh, it's a very strong and emphatic phrase. You just leave it behind. Make sure she has something to glean. Uh, the word there is, again, very kind of poetic. When, when it says leave it behind, forsake them. What did Ruth, uh, she refused to forsake her mother-in-law? Remember that, Azav? Uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama Azav Tani? Why have you forsaken me, that word? Uh, the author is saying, let me play with that word a little bit here. She didn't abandon her mother-in-law. Now, Boaz is telling the workers, abandon the grain stuff the stalks so that she, ca she has something to glean and do not rebuke her. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Has she started gathering more than she needed to? Yes. So no, no, I don't think she was going to sell it. Most gleaners, what they, they, most gleaners would not be able to glean enough to feed themselves for more than a few days at a time. Uh, at most couple of weeks or three weeks, four weeks, and, and um, for, for a day's worth of work, I mean, you think about, oh, um, okay, I can't scan in Hebrew, I can read Hebrew, remind me what verse I'm going to pick up here, okay, all right, gleaning, so once you've sickled, the harvesters are gathering, the kotsurim, they're called the kotsurim, and the, uh, the gleaning happens after, there's only one way to glean, It's a back-breaking labor, um, and it's the fallen grain and a, a few stalks that might have been left behind. And what's on the bottom? What's on the ground? The stubble from the sickling, and they're razor sharp. So the work of gleaning is incredibly hard work. So hard that only young women could do it, Naomi would have never been able to do this. So that's why when Ruth says, I will not forsake you, and she says, let me go glean in the field, <coughs> she's taking charge, I gotta do this for you. And, to, to, and there's only one way to pick up that grain, one at a time. One grain at a time. Backbreaking labor. But you know what I like about this part? Mosaic law. It's, uh, it's a way to provide for the poor, but it's not a handout. There's dignity in this work because it is so hard, but it's theirs. By Mosaic law, it's rightfully theirs. They worked for it, but it is hard. But Ruth is doing it. So she's gleaning for herself and for Naomi. Yeah. So she's letting her get a little bit more. Yeah. She's going to keep keeping. Right. And, and at the end of the day, she's going to have almost unimaginable amount uh, for one day, one day's work. So we, kn we now know why Naomi could not have survived on her own, except maybe by just charity, uh, people just giving her food from time to time. 
Um, what verse am I in? 17. 17? Okay, so, so she goes and, and gleans uh, in the fields until the evening. So until she can't see anymore. Then she uh, beats, <laughs> thresh. Okay, so that once you glean things or once you harvest things, you need to beat the things so that the grains actually all fall out of the, the grain. So it's called threshing. There's a threshing floor. Uh, so she, she threshed and what she had gleaned, and it was... About an aphah, and an aphah would have been equivalent to something like 28 to 32 pounds. Uh, this is almost unimaginable by picking up one grain at a time. I tried to, uh, at home one time, I took uh, one cup of rice, because I eat a lot of rice. Uh, <laughs> I make a joke usually here with my students, uh, but I buy rice in humongous bulks, uh, so I know what 30 pounds of grain looks like, because I, I usually buy like 40 pounds of rice at the, at the Korean grocery store in North Canton, and it's heavy. It's I can barely carry it. So I took one time one cup of rice and threw it on the grass and see if how long it would take me to pick up one cup. It took me about 30 minutes. One cup. Without the barbs coming up, right? Without the so about thirty pounds is what she collected. And it says here that she threshed the barley, mm -hmm. which means she wasn't picking up the seed. Does that mean she was throwing stalks out to make it easier for her? He did, yeah. Remember, he said, "Pull stuff out, leave it behind." So that's why she was able to gain that much. There's no way to do that if Boaz hadn't cheated. Uh, he cheats, right? He's like, okay, she's going to glean, but you know what, guys? Pull, just, just go crazy. Pull it out. And, and he didn't mean like one stock here, one stock there. Remember the emphatic phrase? Just abandon things. Right? Throw it overboard. Just go nuts. That's the only way she could have gleaned 30 pounds of grain this way. Only way. And when she goes back, Naomi's going to say, what happened? Um, Okay, so let's see. What verse are we at? <laughs> 18. 18. Wow, we're not going to make it. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's see if we can make it through 18. Do I have any notes on 18? Oh, yes, I do. So uh, she picks this stuff up. So she took up and she went to the town or the city. And then her mother-in-law saw that she, what she had gleaned, what she had collected. And then uh, Ruth, uh, she, so she here is Ruth. She took out the stuff that she had left over when she was full, the, the parched grain too, the roasted grain. And then here is this, uh, I'm not going to say anything about 18, because we're going to move. 19. Uh, and then she said to her, the, I'm sorry, the, 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 um, the mother-in-law said to her, and she has two questions. Now, now, the two questions really say the same thing. And so, Apho, uh, where did you glean today? Where did you glean today? It's what she's asking, because 30 pounds, you can't do this. Where did you glean today? And where did you work? Uh, two different words for where there, but it's, it, the reason she's asking it twice, where did you work today? Where, where did you, where, what? This is impossible. Where did you go? Blessed be he who took notice of you. Then uh, she reported to her mother-in-law all uh, that she had worked, where she had worked, and with whom she had worked, and she said, and here's a quotation, the name of the man with whom I worked today is, the very last word of that statement, Boaz. Remember, uh, Ruth doesn't know who Boaz is. We do, because the narrator told us right up front, hey, there's a guy named Boaz. He's a redeemer, he's a kinsman, he's a relative. Boaz. Then Naomi said uh, to her daughter-in-law, uh, 
talk about that. Uh, all right, let me pause just for a second. There, there's a word play going on. The, the word for daughter-in-law is kala. And to complete is kala, to finish. To two different vowels, but exact same consonants. Uh, they're not related, they're just homonyms, like to see something and the sea as in the ocean. They're just two different words, uh, but they sound alike. So the word for daughter-in-law sounds very much like, or exactly like, the word to complete. And the author here starts to describe Ruth as her daughter-in-law instead of just her, so she keeps repeating the word, her daughter-in-law said, her daughter-in-law said, and then plays with the word to complete. And, and, and we'll see what, where, that, where that comes in. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he by the Lord who did not abandon, forsake, uh, his chesed. So I spent a lot of time last week talking about chesed. And it's a key word in this book. And Naomi saying, blessed be he, Boaz, um, <coughs> by the Lord, who did not abandon his chesed to the living and to the dead. And then Naomi said to her, uh, he is a relative of ours, Among, actually, he's one of our go'el. He's one of our go'el. Um, translations will change here. Close relative, closest relative, kinsman. Some older translation often has the word redeemer, which is the word redeem, ga'al. Ga'al is to redeem, go'el is the redeemer. Uh, next week, actually, uh, I won't be here because I'm at a conference, but I sent uh, Dan a worksheet and that worksheet uh, is uh, something I use in my teaching uh, that deals with this word, redeem. Because redeem is a, such a powerful word in, Christian in, in our parlance, in our, in our Christianese, if you will. But so few of us can really articulate what it means to redeem something or redeem someone. Uh, we immediately, immediately just jump to salvation, but there's a lot more than that. So we're going to talk, you are all going to talk about redeem next time. But go'el, ga'al is a key word in, Hebrew, uh, in, in uh, Ruth. In fact, it occurs most frequently in the book of Ruth among all other books of the Bible. So it, it, because of it's, a, such, it's a, such a short book that the few times it occurs, it is a very frequent use. Uh, Ruth couldn't be, because uh, by, by marriage, you yeah, mean, by yeah. Marriage. By marriage, she, they could be cousins, yes. They're, they're yeah. kinsmen. kinsmen. On Elimelech's side. Oh, that's right. Yeah. On yeah. Side. Which is what you need for Levirate marriage to work. And Levirate marriage is the other thing that you will discuss next, next time when I'm not here. What, what is this Levirate marriage and what is a kinsman redeemer's job when a brother has died uh, without leaving an heir? So you will talk about that next time, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very necessary discussion for Ruth. Yes? Could that be a reason why he said daughter? He already knew who she was. Yeah. He might have thought, okay, I can get in on this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're related, in a way, you might be saying. Uh, not, by birth, not, not, not by blood, but uh, he knows things that she doesn't know, and so Ruth, at this point, is the one who knows the least, right? Uh, in the in the story, uh, until until Naomi tells her just now, hey, that guy that you just met today, who was so generous with you that you gained thirty pounds by picking up one grain at a time, that guy is our goel, our redeemer. He's among the redeemers. He's a close relative of ours. So now Ruth knows, but does Ruth know what that means? We'll find out in chapter three if Ruth is fully aware of what that really means. But um, at least Naomi is aware. Twenty-one. And then Ruth said, to, "I'm sorry, the Ruth, the Moabitess. Ooh, another reminder. I mean, the reader knows she's Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's a Moabitess. So when an author repeats things like this, they're reminding you, hey, don't forget." She's an outsider. She doesn't belong there. Ruth the Moabitess said, also he said to me, um, st 
stay with or, or, or with my young men, uh, to me, my young men, until the end or the finishing of my harvest. That there, that finishing completion is the word, same word as daughter-in-law. Sounds exactly alike. Uh, it's a playful thing that the author is trying to accomplish there. So that's what he told me. He told me I should stay with the people, his people. Then Naomi said uh, to Ruth, her kala, again, daughter-in-law, playfulness, it is better, it is good, my daughter. Oh, we heard that recently, my daughter. So now not the, the chayel connected uh, Ruth and Boaz, but BT, my daughter, will connect Naomi and Boaz. They're both referring to, to Ruth as my daughter. It is better, it is good, my daughter, that you, that you go out with his young women. Um, and then there's, a, again, kind of a strange stuff happening there. It, I think in some translation, you, they supply the word other people um, or others will befall upon you, something like that, does it? So others do not attack you or harmed, molest. Uh, actually, that word can mean molest, that you might not be molested in another field. So remember my BT, my daughter, stay here. Uh, don't go after another field. Very protective. So Naomi's worried too. Oh, she's a young woman on her own in the fields, um, vulnerable. So yeah, it's really good that you should stay with his people. So she stayed. So she stayed uh, with the young women of Boaz to glean uh, until the finishing, completion, kala again, the same word, of the harvest. Uh, and then there are two harvests here, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And for those of us who are not farmers, and I, I'm not one, I had to look this up a long time ago. In, in Israel, there were two harvests for grain, and uh, the barley season was kind of early spring, so something like early Mar mid-March to April, around that time, and then late April to late May, uh, that period was the wheat harvest. So but simply by providing this information to us, the author and the narrator is giving us a, a passage of time. So she's been there a long time, at least a, a few months, three, four months. She's, and, and to add to that, to add to that passage of time sense, uh, it tells us she lived there with her mother-in-law. So there, ah, she's, she's okay, she's surviving, she's living with her mother-in-law. They're okay, at least they have enough food. Uh, 30 pounds of grain, mm, two women, at least a month or two. And that was one day's work. And she gleans it day after day after day for months. So they're okay. So the author gives us, oh, all right, now to the romance, right? Because we're worried, are they gonna survive? Are they gonna be okay? Uh, no, they're okay. Oh, they got enough food. So chapter three is going to be all about the romance, perfume and nighttime and ooh, threshing floor, <laughs> intimacy. Uh, there's going to be some interesting stories there. Uh, it's a little racy. Some parts a little racy, and I'm glad we're all adults here. Um, there are some questionable things happening, but not questionable in moral sense. There's some, ooh, what's going on kind of questions. Yes? <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Now, TC already said he was a romantic. I can't wait. So uh, I will finish chapter three and four. So in the missing time, we're not actually covering uh, the, the, the reading of the text. So when I'm gone next weekend for the conference, uh, it's background things that you need, like what's a lever at marriage? What's, the, what's this redeeming thing about? And, and, and so that when we get to chapter four and there's whole lever at marriage stuff that needs to happen and legal things that are happening in chapter four, we know, oh, okay, that's what's going on. That's what needed to happen. So when I come back the following week and then the week after, we'll finish three and four. You see one page, right? Yes. I have 25 copies. Maybe Rich can also put it up on the... Uh, on the uh, website, and uh, a well-known teacher to you that's been here before, Van Mischoff, who is a very good Old Testament scholar, will lead us in this. So we, we'll have expert leadership. This won't be a wasted week, so please come back. I'll put the copies up here. Any, any questions? I'm sorry, again. Uh, yes? Yeah, the question was, is there a cultural or dress or some kind of difference between Moabites and Israelites? Uh, not likely. They were all kind of Semitic people. In fact, uh, one time when I was in, in uh, my PhD program, we are reading inscriptions and learning about uh, archaeological discoveries, and our, our professor brought in a, uh, a text, an ancient text, and said, okay, you guys translate this. And there was about six of us in, in the group, and so we, we had a copy, and we're all translating, and sometimes, like, what is this word? We don't know this word. So we, got, we would get all stuck, and like, do you know what this word is? I'm worried, in our PhD program, shouldn't we know all Hebrew words, essentially? And so we felt like, uh-oh, we're not as smart as we think we are. Uh, so we translated, we finished it. Got, there were some hiccups there, and we got to the end. And then the professor said, congratulations, you just translated the Meshem inscription, the Moabite stone. Wow, we did? <laughs> yes, you did. The few times that you're getting stuck, it's because the cognate language has a different word for that. So Moabite language is very, very close to Hebrew as well. So that's why when they move to Moab, they're fine. And then and Ruth can come to, to Israel and, and speak. And, and there might have been a few words here or there that you'd have to fix to say, oh, you don't say Ben for son, you say bar or some the minor changes, and, and, and appearance-wise, they would have been very similar, and there was always kind of a, uh, and, and, and ethnically, Moab is in the line of Abraham as well, right? Uh, the lot, um, that's how, so they would have been similar looking, yes? If the book of Ruth was written by one author, mm -hmm. and it's at the end of chapter three or at chapter four, we get this lineage mm -hmm. Four. I like that. Uh, I like that. I've never thought of it that way. Um, I, I saw the literary device as connecting two characters together. Um, but the strange thing is, David is never described as a person of Chayel. But he was that. He was a Gibor, uh, Gibor warrior. So the word Gibor occurs, but Ish Gibor Chayel, Ish man, Gibor warrior, Chayel, valor, might is uh, the order for Boaz, a man of warrior of might. Uh, and it could be that. I like that idea. I'll have to track that down and see if anyone has actually just commented on that, but it could be. It's possible that David's name is also not David as a given name. It means beloved, though. Uh, David, da David comes from Dod, uh, beloved. So he was either beloved by the people or beloved by God. He was a man after God's own heart, after all. Um, so either way, it means beloved. Um, and I'm not sure if that's his given name, because Jesse didn't seem to think much of him. <laughs> uh, you know, when Samuel comes, yeah, right, you might want to see this one too. Uh, so, would he have named that kid Beloved? Mm, maybe, maybe not. Yes? I feel sorry for the young women that were gleaning. We 
Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was you going to do all this? You said 30 pounds? Yeah. Uh, An AFA. Is she going to sell it? I don't know. But I felt sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Maybe she's here. <laughs> uh, the, the, the story really doesn't have any other gleaners there, though. There are other Kotsurim, uh, other gatherers, or hired workers. It almost seems like she's the only one there. Young women, yeah. So, but my young women there is probably her, her, his servants or people that she he's hired to do uh, the gathering work. So the harvesters, kotsurim. Uh, the, there, there's a distinct word in Hebrew, lakat, uh, for gleaning, and and that word only applies in the story, at least. There might have been other women there, but in the story, we're almost picturing she's alone. Uh, and that might make sense in each field. I don't know how many gleaners you could really have how much would be left behind so that you can sustain the poor people. Uh, and so Mosaic law allows for that. And, and so, I mean, there could have been others, but the story doesn't care about that part. The story wants us to focus on Ruth and Boaz and the romance that's about to start. And Yes? In my translation, at the very beginning of the chapter, Boaz refers to her as a damsel. A damsel? Like <laughs> a damsel? That has yeah. a Maybe. Uh, the word is na'ara. Na'ara is, uh, 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 there are different words for young women in Hebrew, alma, betula, na'ara. And na'ara is just a, a young woman. So it doesn't refer to her um, marriage status or unmarried, so that's why it's broad. Would the four gleaners come in after work hours or during work hours? During. During? Mm -hmm. Really? Typically it would be right after the harvesters have collected the, the sheaves. Other questions? We're out of time, though, but... <coughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.